our technology is not working so well. We've had a few false fire alarms and our sound system is a little bit creaky. Not more than your preacher. However, we carry on. This summer, as you have learned, we have been studying from the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which we are learning is not so much a history book or a biography as it is a gospel. That is to say, it is, it is a sermon in itself written to a particular people, a particular Christian community at a particular time dealing with particular issues. And Luke had, had access, the Gospel of Mark apparently, as well as another gospel called Q, that is sort of unnamed, as well as the, the stories and narratives that had been handed down. This morning's text comes to us at a large point of transition in Luke's Gospel in the ninth chapter. Luke transitions from Jesus' successful ministry in Galilee to his journey toward Jerusalem and the inevitable cross and death that will meet him there. Reading from the ninth chapter, verse 51 through 62, may God open up to us an understanding of this word. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that's code for crucified and resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and on their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. I think I told you about when I first decided to go public and declare that I wanted to go to seminary. I went to see my pastor and mentor, Lewis Patrick, in Charlotte, sat down in his office and tried to explain to him the next part of my journey. I want to go to seminary. Lou smoked a pipe with Captain Black Tobacco. It filled the whole church with the smell. I can smell it today, and it still smells like faith. 
He took a couple of puffs on his pipe and blew it up to the ceiling and leaned back in his chair, and I'm sitting on pins and needles waiting for his response. And he looks over at me and gives me the wisest advice I have ever heard, and also the most unusual. He said to me, okay, don't do anything, just stand there. I expected him to say the opposite, knowing that the church, in those days at least, was in need of ministers, and I felt like I had a few gifts. I mean, I, I didn't feel like a minister, really. I didn't, I didn't act like a minister. I didn't really know the Bible very well. I didn't very much understand theology. I didn't know how a church worked, but I was an insurance salesman, and I figured, you know, that might get me somewhere, because ministers are supposed to go out and sell Jesus, right? Obviously, he had other thoughts. Don't do anything, just stand there. And then he went on to tell me the story of when he went public with his announcement that he was going to seminary when he was 23 years old. It was during... World War II, and he was accepted into an accelerated program at Princeton, and when he decided to go, he told his family, and as in every Sunday, they went to their grandmother's house for Sunday lunch, the grand dame of the family. Everyone in Dr. Patrick's family, I call them Dr. Patrick, and Lou's family went, except for Lou's father, for he and his wife had divorced because of his alcoholism. So they head off to his maternal grandmother's house who sat in a large southern type antebellum house in due west South Carolina holding forth she would look over her glasses at each person there and ask them a direct question about their lives and when she came to Lewis Patrick she said to him, Lewis, I hear tell that you were planning on going to seminary. Yes, ma'am, he said. Was this your idea, or were you poorly advised? <laughs> Lewis was trying to remind me that following Christ is not so easy, and it should be an intentional decision. But he was also reminding me that, you know what, this might be a decision that's greater than our own to make. This morning's story makes it clear that we are not willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Our family, our friends, our obligations, our laws, our customs, and our culture. We are not willing to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, who had set his face to go there, that inevitable outcome of failure and loss and rejection and even death. Basically, what Lou was trying to tell me was to take my time, sit there before I do anything else, and to ask myself, you know what, am I willing to suffer and fail like Jesus? I've often thought of, you know, saying these words to people who join the church. 
Are you willing to suffer and fail and carry your cross like Jesus before you say yes to this place? A little bit like having premarital counseling with a young couple who are there with the deer in the headlights look thinking that it's going to be marital bliss. And I want to say that it can be marital bliss, but it's also marital hardship and difficulty and work and so forth. Uh, joining the church, being a disciple, we are all ministers of the word here in the Presbyterian Church. We all ministers have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to go there with Jesus? And I got to tell you, the story in Luke tells us unequivocally, no. None of us. This is what the Gospel of Luke is trying to make clear to us generations later, as Luke was making it clear to the generations in his own church. They were way more persecuted than we are, or we could even imagine being. And he's trying to explain to them that the way of Christ is about suffering and sacrifice, and in the end, really, failure. This morning's passage comes to us the end of Jesus' successful beginning. He's healed people. He's even raised people from the grave. According to Luke, he fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. He's gone up to the mountaintop of transfiguration. My goodness, it had been, been colored as dazzling white as white can be. And everybody thought, my gosh, this must be God incarnate, present in our midst. It was the high point of his whole ministry. And as soon as he's up there, he comes back down the mountain and says to them, Now, the Son of Man must be crucified and then be raised. And they were all saying, No, 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 not you. That's not it. Yet this is the moment where the whole journey shifts from Jesus' successful ministry in Galilee to the beginning of his failure as he goes to Jerusalem. He first chooses to go through the land of the Samaritans. They were the racial enemy of the Jews. He wanted to go there because he wanted them to know that they too were just as much a part of the kingdom of God as the Jews were. So he sent two disciples to prepare the way. Yet when they found out that Jesus' face had been set to go to Jerusalem, have you ever tried to convince a loved one, a child, or sibling or a spouse whose face was dead set for something? Have you ever tried to talk them out of that? Not, you just don't do it. When they found out that Jesus' face had been set to go to Jerusalem, they knew what that meant. That's not the, that's not the Messiah they wanted. And so James and John, the Thunder Brothers, they are called, knowing about Elijah calling forth the lightning strike on the 400 Baal prophets because they were inhospitable to God, said, you want us to call forth the lightning and thunder and bring forth and zap all these? Well, in their racial stereotyping, what else do they want to do but get rid of the Samaritans? And Jesus rebukes them immediately and moves on to the next town. You know, it, it occurs to me, uh, if Jesus could speak to us today, we preachers who like to call down fire and brimstone 
on people in our pews who are not doing it the way we think they ought to do it, that Jesus would rebuke us too, just like he did those Thunder Brothers in Samaria. Jesus is going along the way we follow in the story, and a man comes up to him, or might have been a woman, and says to him, I will follow you, Jesus. And he says, okay, but you know what? You don't know what you're asking. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I don't even have any place to lay my head. You sure you want to go there? And it doesn't tell us what this person did. And my sense is that just like those who asked Jesus, well, who can be saved? They went away shaking their heads. To another one who's been hanging around Jesus, Jesus says to him, follow me. Uh, well, okay, uh, but first I, I need to follow the law in Leviticus. It was clearly stated that I must go and bury my father, honor thy father and thy mother. And Jesus says, with some humor, and I think hyperbole, let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay. And the third person comes up and says, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first I need to go settle my accounts with my family. At least let them know where I'm going and, and tie up all the loose ends. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch. When you think about it, it's a miracle any of us are here. If this, in fact, is the litmus test for what it means to follow Christ. You see, not only is it true that Jesus' own journey ended in failure, when it comes to following Christ, so does ours. It was Peter who denied him shamelessly three times in the garden, deserted him in his greatest hour of need, failed so miserably at following him later that he chose to be crucified upside down so that he would not die on the same level as Jesus. And Paul, Gentile apostle, five times received 40 lashes, save one, excuse me, 40 is death. Beaten with rod, was once stoned, three times shipwrecked, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from his own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food and, and cold and exposure. This is hardly a description of a successful operation. And in the end, Paul was the one who said, I am the least of the disciples. None of them succeeded. If this is the description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then Lewis Patrick's grandmother's question was exactly right. Was this 
our idea or were we poorly advised? Every week or so, I receive some advertisement or marketing device presenting a book or some manual about how we need to get back to the leadership ways of Jesus in order to be successful in our churches or in our businesses or in our families. They all share a similar title, something like Jesus' Ten Ways to Successful Leadership. And usually these books go on to point out some tried and true management technique like you know, delegating, which Jesus did to his 12 disciples, or, you know, having a passion and following it, or, or being compassionate toward your, toward your people, or managing your own emotion in times of crisis. And, and these books point out that, that in, in order for us to really truly be successful, we need to incorporate the leadership ways of Jesus to do so. And I gotta say, the irony of this should not be lost us. For Jesus' way, at least as far as this world could see, as I have already said, was a complete failure. It was. Let me remind you that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, his life ended on a cross, and everybody save two or maybe three women abandoned. And he died. Then one morning, a month or so ago, an article crossed my desk written from a really smart theologian at Duke Seminary from their Faith and Leadership School, and his name is Caven Rhodes. The title of this article is Faith and Leadership, Failure as Christ-Shaped Leadership. Now that'll sell a thousand books. Failure as Christ-Shaped Leadership. The article begins, it's stunning that books that present Jesus as a model, CEO, lead pastor, or community organizer ever leave the shelves. After all, Jesus was crucified. Moreover, his best workers abandoned him in his hour of need, left the project incomplete, and ran to the hills. What CEO wants that? The point is that failure is at the heart of what Christian leaders have to offer the world. Failure is at the heart of what Christian leaders have to offer the world. He goes on to point there are several places in our culture where this is true. In medical practice, at hospitals apparently, physicians gather weekly in what's known as morbidity and mortality conferences where they candidly discuss their failures. There are no lawyers or reporters there, of course, so they can honestly share about their surgical mistakes, their trauma care misfires, their errors of judgment, and so forth. Like these M&M conferences institutionalize, they recognize the presence of failure as something that is intrinsic to our work. Professor Rowe goes on to point out that every day, in every city, more than once, probably 20 or 30 times in different locations, communities of people gather to share they are complete 
and utter failures when it comes to beating the addiction that they have been struggling with. And that every AA meeting starts the same way. My name is Margaret and I am an alcoholic. If that's not an admission of failure, I don't know what is. And in this church, every single Sunday, we gather and the first thing we do after singing the hymn is what? We confess that we are failures. It's called our confession of sin. The point is that failure is at the heart of what Christian leaders have to offer the world, especially when it comes to our being willing to sell it all and to give it all up and follow Jesus because none of us do. I can't help but think of Nelson Mandela these days as he is on the edge of his transition into whatever was before him. He justifiably deserves incredible praise and glory for his courage and leadership and power, his willingness to suffer and sacrifice. But if you add it all up, you would hardly say that his life was a success. Divorced twice, married three times, imprisoned for 27 years, when he got out, the dark vice of apartheid was symbolically broken, at least. Freedom and liberty and equality symbolically now the rule. Which led him in the speech he gave the first day he was released from prison. The last thing he said was this. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But, if need be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. A democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and equal opportunity, this is his definition of success. And while he was able to see the democratic part, he did not witness the free society in which persons live together in harmony. South Africa is just as much in the midst of hurt and violence as ever, and if you are grading things by the scale of failure and success, you have to say that his life was not completely successful, at least by the world's terms. Mandela, you see, knew that God grades things differently, maybe on a curve, just as Jesus did when he said, I am going to Jerusalem. For he said and saw that it is never about our success, or even about our failures, but about the journey that God has chosen to take with us and for us in Jesus Christ. The story, if you read on, will tell you that Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and looked down on it from the Mount of Olives and began to weep. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have loved you and nurtured you like a mother hen loves her brood, but you would not have let me. Confession of failure. He's hurt. 
he wept. Just as we weep over the swamps that our fathers and grandfathers and forefathers and mothers have dug for this world of ours. And just as we weep over the failure of it all, the brokenness and the hurt and the loss of it all, just as we weep over a world that we dare not abandon because we don't know whether we could replace anything better, and just as we weep over the fact that we cannot redeem ourselves or save ourselves or forgive ourselves, we weep that Jesus' name is with us but not his power. We weep for politicians, for white and black races, for neighborhoods, stand your ground, Vigilantes, we weep for Iraq and Afghanistan and for the reality that we always fail in places where we think power can solve human and political problems. We weep for our children born out of wedlock, for parents or a parent who cannot raise him or herself enough to even raise a child, for marriages that that cannot find one partner out of either that's willing to sacrifice or suffer enough to hurt that other person so that love can find traction. We suffer for our planet and we weep for it for the parent race that we are on toward its death. We weep for it all because failure seems so prominent and suffering. But that's not all. You see, this is the truth about the faith we call Christian and the following of the one we call Jesus Christ. And all the weeping in the world and all the failures and all the brokenness and all the hurt and loss and the collective of the whole humanity has been heaped on Jesus himself as he bore it up on the cross. For you see, it is just this failure in each of us, in all of us, that made it worth dying for. Don't you see this is our grace? This is our hope? I know Steve comes back from, from vacation and he always carries a big stick. This is the ultimate hope for all of us that we cannot save ourselves, but that God in Jesus Christ has set for us the journey of salvation already prepared. The truth is, it's cross time, and cross time means it's God's doing, and it convicts us of our failures, but ultimately, he brings us to incredible laughter at the end of our weeping because it reminds us of the ultimate grace and love of God in Jesus Christ that says to us, fail or not, succeed or not. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're mine. May God bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labor.